On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Chris Wozniki about T.F. Torrance. So we cover all sorts of topics like who in the world is T.F. Torrance and why is he worth understanding and studying? What's Torrance's theological method when it comes to theological anthropology? What is the fall on human nature debate and where does Torrance fall on it? What's the most interesting aspect of Torrance's metaphysics of human persons? What does Torrance take the image of God to be? And so much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we think about serious thinking, uh, that means that we need to have serious intellectual virtues that go along with it. So we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture that prizes things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, because we think all those things are required to be a good, healthy, serious thinker. So when it comes to things like critical thinking, that means we don't we try not to make just assertions without arguments. We try to actually formulate arguments and explain what we're thinking and be critical in that, but we also want to, to display charity towards other people and their views to accurate, accurately represent them uh, and all that goes on with that. So we try to do that with the podcast. Uh, with that said, I, I'm really looking forward to reintroducing you all for those. If you're a new listener, maybe you, you don't know Dr. Chris Wisnicki. Um, if you are a regular listener, then you know Chris. Uh, he's he's out in California and he is he has a heart for the local church, but he also has a PhD, and I think it's, maybe it's systematic theology, but you do, he's an analytic theology guy. Um, so I really think he displays all the virtues that we want to promote with the podcast. Um, he, he's, he's really just, he's awesome. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about the subject of his dissertation on T.F. Torrance and theological anthropology and everything that goes on with that. So Chris, before we get started, for those who aren't familiar with you, give me the 30-second synopsis of what you do now the things you're interested in. And then maybe the next question is, why did you think uh, I want to study and write, you know, 200 plus pages on Torrance? Yeah. Um, so I'm Chris Wozniki. As, as Jordan said, I'm out in California, specifically in Los Angeles. Um, I did my PhD at Fuller Seminary studying systematic theology with Oliver Crisp. And I currently serve uh, with a ministry called Young Life. Uh, I serve as a trainer um, for the Los Angeles region, but I've also done pastoral ministry, did uh, six years as um, essentially the college minister at our church, at the church that I had been attending. Um, married, two kids, six and two. Um, and also, just a sort of slight correction, it is based off the dissertation, but also this is a book uh, that's coming out June 1st which um, at this point, when you're listening to this, it'll have already come out. And you can get it on Amazon for $36 on the Kindle or spend $160 for a hardcover. Which, with Rutledge, they usually come out with a paperback eventually, don't they? Yeah, it's it'll, semi-affordable. It's actually in the contract that it'll be within, I think, two years um, that it'll come out as a paperback, which means it'll probably still be around 50 bucks. 
Okay, so depending on when you're listening to this, maybe if you're listening to this and it's two it's two years from when this releases, you have the access to the paperback and you can go get that. Um, so so why Torrance? Um, you know, Alistair McGrath um, has said that T.F. Torrance is arguably the most important British theologian of the 20th century. And that sentiment gets echoed by a bunch of people. People have called him a leading reformed theologian, the most one of the most brilliant and seminal thinkers of our time. Uh, one of the premier theologians of the second half of the 20th century. And Oliver Crisp, um, he actually places him amongst a list of some of the most important uh, theologians from Scotland. So Richard of St. Victor, Dun Scotus, John Mayer, John Knox, John Cameron, Samuel Rutherford. He like places him within this group of seminal uh, Scottish thinkers. Um, so one is the recognition that he's one of the most important English speaking theologians. Um, although if you're in the States, you might not really sort of notice that. Uh, if you're over in the UK or even on the continent, um, you'd probably come across him significantly more. Um, but he also has a really um, strong, I guess, legacy of things that he's done. Um, he's the one who translated Bart's Church Dogmatics, which is just a massive undertaking. And he's the one who we can attribute that to. Um, he edited Calvin's New Testament commentaries, which I'm guessing most of our readers have read or use Calvin's New Testament commentaries, so they can credit him for that. Um, he founded the Scottish Journal of Theology. So if you're a systematician, um, almost guaranteed that you're going to interact with the journal that he founded. Um, he was uh, a chaplain in the armed forces during World War II. He was the moderator of General Assembly for the Church of Scotland. And he also took the lead in um, writing a joint statement with the World Alliance of Reformed Churches and the Orthodox Churches. So they came together and wrote a joint statement on the Trinity, um, and we can attribute that to him. So um, there's quite a bit um, quite a bit of highlights when it comes to Torrance. But I think for me, um, one of the things that really drew me to him, one is um, his, the material that he writes about, and I guess I'll put that to the side for a second, but also his life story. Uh, Torrance was born in China. Uh, he was the son of missionaries, and his father was actually a part of the 1910 uh, Edinburgh Missionary Conference, which uh, if you know missionary history, that is a really seminal landmark moment. Um, and he grew up with his dad going out to remote villages in the mountains of China as his dad went and preached and taught um, and worked on Bible translation. And he actually thought that he was going to end up being a missionary in West China or Tibet. That was his sort of life plan. Um, so he had this missionary impulse throughout his whole life. And in China, he grew up reading Calvin and Luther uh, and Samuel Rutherford. That was kind of just the environment that he grew up in. Uh, and then he moved back to Scotland uh, with his family, and he studied philosophy and classics at Edinburgh. Uh, he studied under Ross Mackintosh, who at that time was one of the leading Bart scholars. Um, and then he spent some time after that teaching in the U.S., so he taught at Auburn. Um, not that Auburn, uh, Auburn Seminary, which is in New York. Um, he got invitations to teach at Princeton and McCormick. But then World War II was starting and he felt like it was appropriate for him to go back home and not stay in the U.S. Uh, in the midst of that. Um, and he worked with InterVarsity Fellowship while he was over there, did parish ministry, and eventually ended up as a chaplain uh, in the British Army uh, out in the fields. Um, 
I think most of his time was spent out in Italy. Um, so after that, he went back to Basel. He um, finished his dissertation under Karl Barth, studying uh, the doctrine of grace with the apostolic fathers. Um, and then he went back to Edinburgh, did his teaching thing, retired, wrote on Trinity, Incarnation, and Atonement kind of stuff, issues of theology and science. But that topic was actually, again, because of this missionary impulse that he had. Um, he, he saw himself as, uh, as writing a sort of evangelistic, apologetic sort of defense uh, of the compatibility between Christianity and science. Um, so he saw himself as his theological work as doing missionary work to scientific Western culture. Um, and to me, that's encouraging because that he wasn't just doing theology for the sake of doing it as a intellectual discipline, but there was this uh, evangelistic impulse uh, underlying it. And um, he actually returned to China several times um, later in his life Um was involved with distribution of Bibles, which his father was part of the American um, Bible Missionary Society. Um, and I can't confirm this because I haven't read the published article yet, but I have a friend who uh, was writing an article in which um, he, he tells this story of Torrance's final spoken interactions with somebody. Um, so he was in the hospital um, almost ready to pass away. And his last spoken interaction was actually with a Chinese nurse who he shared the gospel with. Um, so it really sort of closed that entire story. Um, but I'd say the, just to circle around, like the reason I find him so compelling is that despite having over 600 published works, translating one of the most important dogmatics of the 20th century and arguably um, of the church, the retrieval of Calvin's commentaries, um, I think it's his focus on the gospel that's actually his his greatest legacy and why I'm so drawn to him. Do you have, I'm just curious before we get into um, the stuff on his theological anthropology, um, do you have a, a biography that you would recommend for people? Because that's really quite a, a full life story. Um, do you, is there an accessible biography you'd recommend? Yeah, so um, Alistair McGrath, um, he wrote a book on, on T.F. Torrance. Um, and it's, he calls it a theological biography. So about the first, maybe about 60 or 70 pages of the book are his biography. Uh, and the last, um, about like 200 pages are, uh, his, on his theology, a sort of introduction to his overall theology. Um, Alistair McGrath has that, um, Elmer, Elmer Collier also has another book on him, which similar the first 20 or so pages are biography, um, most of it, most of the people who've written biographies sort of frame it within sort of the context of the development of his theology. Um, but I think his just life is just, as you said, so full and interesting. Um, cool. So let's, let's shift gears now to the um, theological anthropology discussion. What's Torrance's method when it comes to um, his anthropology? Yeah. So um, I've, I think I've briefly mentioned this on a different uh, episode, but there's generally a couple of ways that people approach method when it comes to theological anthropology. And um, this is just sort of broad strokes. Um, either people tend to begin with the Genesis narrative, or they tend to reflect upon experiences of being a human being um, and sort of launch from there, or they reflect upon God himself. And um, within that last category, People have tended either to start with the doctrine of the Trinity or they start with Christology. 
Now, if you start with Christology, you got to ask, like, where in Christology? Like, that's such a huge topic. Like, where are you going to start? Uh, and typically, people have either followed one of two paths. And the first path is protology, and the second is eschatology. So um, I'll give you a definition of those, uh, Brandon, because I know you're into that kind of stuff. Um, so the protological approach uh, are Christological anthropologies that claim that Christology warrants important claims about what it means to be human because Jesus's humanity is the eternal paradigm of humanity. Um, and then the eschatological view, um, it's going to replace that eternal paradigm bit um, and talk about how Jesus fulfills the eschatological destiny of humans. So Torrance actually doesn't want to begin with either of these. Um, he actually attempts to discern what it means to be human by looking at Christ as he comes to us in the midst of salvation history. So he doesn't want to look at prior to salvation history and protology. He doesn't want to look at the end and eschatology, but as Christ uh, comes to us in our own history. And that's actually not that surprising um, if somebody knows Torrance's epistemology. Um, so Torrance has this phrase that, that shows up pretty much everywhere, um, but mostly in a science kind of work. Um, so, so the phrase is um, that, that science is kata fusen, so, um, so according to the nature. Um, so Torrance, he, he says that we know things according to their natures, so we have to let the natures actually determine the content and form of how we approach knowledge of that thing. Um, and he, that's why he, um, that's why he says that theology is a science because like the natural sciences, which take their method and approach from the nature of the thing they're studying, uh, theology does the same thing. We, um, we know God in accordance to, um, what kind of being God is, uh, and how God acts. Um, so it's, it's a science. So he thinks it's a science. Um, and for Torrance, that means that the study of theology and theological anthropology as a part of that is going to be an a posteriori activity. Um, you have to begin with the object that's being studied as it's actually given to us. And for Christ, um, <clears throat> that means um, that the homoousios is going to be sort of the linchpin of how we understand who, who Christ is. Um, so like, just like our understanding of uh, divinity comes from the fact that Christ is homoousios uh, with the Father. Uh, his, our study of humanity is going to come from the fact that Christ is also homoousios with us. Um, I know that that seems that probably seems a bit technical, uh, but uh, the Chalcedonian symbol says, and I'll just read it here. It says that Christ is consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. So that's the first part, and consubstantial with us according to manhood. Um, so so that becomes sort of the area of focus for when we're doing Christological or theological anthropology. We're trying to look at how Christ is and who Christ is as he appears to us in our own um, history, because we don't have access to anything else. Like we can read scripture about God's plans um, before creation. Um, we can read about the eschatology, but we don't actually have access to that um, what we have access to is Christ as he's come to us. Okay. So one of the questions that I was most curious about 
coming in to talk about Torrance is his understanding of the fallen human nature debate and where he sort of falls on that. So I find that whole thing super fascinating, though the more I've read on it, the less clear I am in understanding what exactly people are trying to say when they say Christ assumed to fall on human nature. So maybe give me, you know, like the two or three minute sort of summary of that debate and then kind of walk me through where Torrance lands on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first off, it doesn't mean that Christ is sinful. I think that that needs to get sort of cleared up. It doesn't mean that he sins um, or is a... Um, yeah, that he, that he sins. It just doesn't mean that. Um, so that's off the table. Nobody really wants to affirm that who affirms. I mean, maybe there are some people who, I mean, I see it on social media. People are like, oh, Christ was a racist or whatever. That's that's not what the fallen nature view is. Um, so there, there's a couple of, uh, of different options. One is the most basic sort of option, which I think most Christians would sort of unreflectively tend to assume. And that is that... Um, Christ's nature was liable to the sort of weaknesses and infirmities that all humans face. So like Christ can catch a cold, Christ can have a headache. Like that's part of what it means to live in the fallen world. Um, so I think all people would say like, yeah, if that's what it means, then cool. Um, but that's not what everybody who is in this debate actually means. Um, I think the most famous person historically who held to the view was Edward Irving. Um, and he specifically thought that um, that the person, uh, uh, the divine person, is the one who prevents original sin, um, and that it's the human nature who uh, suppresses this law of the flesh or this um, guilt-worthy concupiscence. Um, so Christ has a nature that is prone to a human nature that is prone to that, but it's suppressed by uh, the person. And then Bart taught that Christ assumed a human nature in its state of original sin but that it was healed at the moment of conception. Um, so so that's the sort of other option. And then Colin Gunton sees Christ as living within this network of sinful relations, fallen relations, but not being guilty in the midst of that. Um, and Torrance lands somewhere near the, Bart, the Barthian position, um, where Christ assumes a nature like ours, which is uh, fallen, um, but that nature upon the moment of uh of union of the divine nature and the human nature that it's that it's healed um that that nature is sanctified uh, and i'll read a quote here from torrent so he says in the very act of assuming our flesh the word sanctified and hollowed it for the assumption of our sinful flesh is itself atoning and sanctifying action how could it be otherwise when he the holy one took on himself our unholy flesh um, so it's it's a it's a not a process, but it's an act of sanctification. So uh, another aspect that I wanted to hear more on was Torrance's. I mean, so when we're you're, you did your work on his theological anthropology, one of the things that I think I'm most interested in when it comes to that whole, I guess, sphere of topics is just the metaphysics of human persons. So maybe you can tell me what he thought about the metaphysics of human persons, and then what's the most interesting thing that he really brings to the table in that discussion? Yeah. Um, so, so he he's fairly traditional when it comes to um, the the questions of human constitution. Um, humans have a soul. Humans have 
physical bodies. Um, he does want to sort of de-emphasize a strong form of dualism, but he still thinks that we're constituted by different parts um, that are unlike each other. But I think his metaphysics gets really interesting when he starts to think about what human nature is. Um, now, in his Doctrine of Atonement, Torrance um, is concerned to maintain two things. Uh, the first is that whatever happens to Christ's human nature happens to human nature in general. And the second is that Christ, because he's a particular individual human being, must also be able to act as an individual person with a human nature. So, um, so he has both of these sort of theses, and then it's a matter of working out, okay, how do we hold together both of these, um, these different convictions um, that, that, um, that Torrance holds to because of atonement? Um, and that's actually where stuff gets a little bit wonky. Um, so it gets so, so Oliver Crisp, um, he wrote an essay um, responding to some of this stuff. And he says, I'll quote him here, says, uh, Wozniacki, in a moment of scholarly understatement, says that the idea of a universal that is capable of being acted upon is unheard of in the philosophical literature. Um, so he holds to a view where human, uh, human nature is a sort of universal um, that all human beings participate in, but that, that that nature, which is universal in the sense that all human beings who have a human nature participate in it, can actually change and be affected out in the world. Which, if you know about universals, that's like not a thing. <laughs> Um, so that's why Oliver makes that um, sort of statement. But it's actually not that strange given Torrance's patristic emphasis and his patristic uh, interests. Um, so Ben Myers, he, he wrote a, I think, wonderful essay on the patristic doctrine of atonement. And you can find it in the Christology book from the LATC series in Zondervan. Um, and he lays out several different convictions um, that's shared by the early church fathers. And one of those is that um, there's one human nature and that all individual beings participate in this nature. Um, that to rescue humanity from its plight, God needed to retrieve human beings from the state of death. And the way that he does that is by uh, uniting the divine nature to this sort of whole universal type of human nature uh, because when God does that and he affects that human nature, it changes humanity as a whole. Um, that's something that Athanasius holds to. So Athanasius compares humanity to a town in which a king comes and visits a town. And because of that visit, the whole town is now dignified by this new resident. Um, Irenaeus talks about humanity as like a book and Christ being the praises that affects the entire book. Um, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, he says, and I'll quote him here, he says in a sermon, um, he bears a title man with the aim of hollowing humanity through himself by becoming a sort of yeast for the whole lump. He has united with himself all that lay under condemnation in order to release it from condemnation. For all our sakes, he became all that we are, sin apart, body, soul, mind, and all that death pervades. Um, so he has a so he, it's essentially a patristic metaphysic where human nature is this one thing that all human beings participate in, and that is a f that can affect 
everybody who participates in it. That's super interesting. I, as you're explaining, like the the different views where like, you know, if the king comes to the town and it becomes dignified, I mean, is that really metaphysically changing the universal, if that's the example? Um, if the town is human nature, then mm-hmm. it's changing the thing that all of the humans participate in. I guess, when because when I think of that example, I think, well, that doesn't seem very, you know, counterintuitive. But when I think of changing universal or something, let's say, I guess it depends on how you define human nature to begin with. So if yeah. I just defined it as, you know, a, a rational animal or something like that, um, it seems like becoming dignified would be something that's not changing the universal. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess you'd have to take it a step back um, and think about, um, yeah, whether human nature is a, a concrete thing or if it's a, an abstract thing. Um, and Torrance, he wants to use the language of there being one, one nature. Um, and if there's one nature, then it's hard to say how that one nature, uh, how we can maintain sort of a concrete view of human nature if there's one. I just don't see how you could do that. Okay. Like you could say, okay, Christ does perform some action and that affects every concrete, every being that has this particular human nature, but he's not wanting to say that. He's wanting to say that um, by performing this one action, all of this automatically happens to every person precisely because they're human in virtue of their relationship to this one thing. I'm somewhat compelled by it, but at the same time, I feel like there's probably problems lurking in the neighborhood, but I don't want to believe this. Yeah. I mean, one problem, um, I have an essay that came out in Criswell Theological Review is that um, you could see this as lending itself towards a sort of universalism. Um, If Christ redeems and sanctifies human, all of human nature, then everybody sort of automatically um, redeemed. Um, but there, Torrance has ways to sort of get around that. Um, and I, it has been, there has been uh, some debate about whether he actually is universalist, despite the fact that he claims it like, no, like scripture doesn't allow us to go there. Um, scripture is clear that there is a hell and there will be people in hell. Um, but I think there are certain ways that he, um, understands faith and vicarious humanity of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit that would prevent us from going with a full-blown universalism. It's more of like a hypothetical universalism. Right, gotcha. So let's let's talk a little bit about his his view of the image of God. There's a number of different um, prevalent views on the image of God. There's relational and, and structure, structural and functional views. Does Torrance's view on the image of God land neatly in one of those categories, or is he kind of doing his own thing that doesn't fit neatly uh, with one of those three? Yeah, so so Torrance, um, if you had to categorize him, he would fall under the relational view. Um, he does talk about the importance of rationality, um, and he actually thinks that that's a huge part of what human beings are intended to do. So, like, he thinks this is, goes to a bit to vocation, but um, to explore and understand uh, God's creation. So, he definitely does emphasize rationality. Uh, and Mike Habits thinks that that is how Torrance thinks of the image of God. And I, I just think that he's wrong on that. Um, oh, he elevates rationality and intelligence and that kind of stuff. Um, he also has a really strong place for 
um, humanity developing uh, creation and bringing order to it, and that would fit the more sort of functional view. Um, but I'd say that just because these are features of human beings that are exclusive to humanity, um, maybe the, ration the rationality piece isn't exclusive to humanity, um, but just because they're really important features of what it means to be a human, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are what defines the image of God. Um, so for Torrance, he can say, okay, like rational beings were beings with a particular function, but that doesn't mean uh, that those things make us the image of God. And he'd say that what makes us the image of God is the fact that we are relational beings. Um, we're relational horizontally um, with other human beings. And we're also relational vertically um, with our relation to God himself. And that gets messed up in the fall. Um, our relationships with others get messed up in the fall. Obviously, our relationship with God is messed up in the fall. Um, and that's what needs to be restored, that relationality. So there's a sense in which, objectively, for Torrance, um, the image of God isn't lost or marred because we're still relating to God, although improperly, and relating to others, although improperly. But there is a subjective sense as well, uh, according to which we're not relating to God in the way that God would want us to relate as, as individuals. And um, he talks about that kind of relation as a mirroring sort of relation, which echoes Calvin's language uh, about what the image of God is. Uh, so we're intended to be mirrors uh, of God's grace. Um, God shines his grace upon us, and we mirror that back, and that uh, ends up glorifying God. And that's the specific kind of relation. It's not just this sort of abstract, like, oh, like, we talk to God, and we, like, are friends with him. It's a specific kind of mirroring God's grace and glory kind of relation that he has in mind. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to you to cover from sort of your book, not I don't want you to cover everything because I want people to go buy it <laughs> and read it. Um, the last one would be Torrance's thought on vocation for human beings. I think vocation is a super interesting topic that I always like learning more about. So what is Torrance's contribution to that area? Yeah, um, this is probably what I'm most excited about at the moment because I'm working on a book on it, and I have already several chapters written, um, sort of spitting off the, the ideas that came out in this chapter. Um, so if you want to sort of praises of what the book is going to be, you can check out that chapter. Um, essentially, Torrance thinks that human vocation is grounded on two things. One is that God um, made creation to be rational and orderly, and the other is that it's contingent. So there's these two features of God's creation that undergird vocation. Um, and the hum human vocation boils down to three, you can say four things. Um, one is discerning order within creation, which goes back to the nature of creation. If it's not orderly, well, then there's nothing to discern. Um, if it's not contingent, Torrance thinks, then scientific exploration um, is kind of pointless. We could just sort of... A, uh, a priori reason to the way things are. Um, and he has a long historical argument for that. Um, so there's discerning order, there's instituting order where order hasn't been fully developed. There's rectifying disorder in creation. So discerning, instituting, and rectifying, and all of this is for the purpose of glorifying God. Um, 
Now, the way that he thinks about these things are specifically in terms of um, scientific occupations. So, like, you can think of uh, a biologist, and this is an example that comes up in the book, um, how biologists and urban developers and planners in L.A. Uh, and the government are working together uh, because they've discerned that the mountain lion population in Los Angeles is, is dying and there's a problem of inbreeding. Uh, because they're sort of locked into particular pockets. And one of the reasons that they've discerned that they're locked into these pockets is because whenever they try to cross the highway, they get run over. So, um, so they've discerned um, the order, which is the way things ought to be. They've uh, worked towards rectifying that disorder, and now they're instituting order by building uh, these sort of bridges and underpasses which um, the mountain lions would want to actually cross and could cross safely. Um, so that's the kind of example that you could think of, like government working together with scientists, with planners, um, in order to bring about order where order has been lost. Um, but you can actually think about this category of um, discerning order, instituting order, and rectifying disorder with any sort of job. like. Think about how a teacher, uh, an elementary school teacher, works in the classroom, right? They have to discern the particular ways that students learn. Um, they have to create lesson plans, which are going to be conducive to that. And then they're going to have to rectify disorder when, um, when they find out that the kids aren't learning in this way. So they have to sort of go back to plan A and, like, restart the process. Um, you can think about that in... Uh, manufacturing, right? Like what's the best way to structure this factory so that we are effective, but also structure it in such a way that um, workers are being treated properly and not being overworked. So I think this paradigm of discerning, instituting, and rectifying um, can actually go a long way. I think it definitely gives a theological basis for um, vocational scientists, but I think it also applies to pretty much any other sort of job or career that you can think of. So one other thing that I want to know for those who are interested in Torrance, because I think I had no idea about like 99% of the stuff you told me about Torrance at the beginning of like all the cool stuff he did in my head. I thought he was just kind of like a total nerd and had a nice office, you know, over there in Scotland and did his uh, theological thing. So it's super interesting. We've talked about his biographies. I want to know what's his, I guess, most interesting work, and does he have anything that might be autobiographical in nature? And then maybe what's the most entry level sort of work that he's written? Yeah, so um, I'd, for the entry level sort of work, um, I'd recommend The Mediation of Christ. Uh, I think that's a really good book. It sort of captures all of his um, sort of main themes. Um, so Mediation of Christ, it's really short. Uh, you're basically going to get what you're going to find in his really big books on incarnation and atonement, but in a sort of narrowed down sort of scope. Um, and you'll also get a little bit of his science kind of stuff in there. Um, there's actually a couple of other books um, that I'd recommend. There's a book called Roundtable Conversations with European Theologians. Um, and I just love books that are just interviews where people just sort of um, dive a little deeper into who the person is and stuff gets a little bit more personal. 
Um, and that book actually has an in interviews with Alistair McGrath, Moltmann, Pannenberg, uh, and Torrance. And um, yeah, like it asks questions like straight up, like what is a human being? Um, they ask him, what is the gospel? Which I think is really fascinating to see within like a paragraph, a world-class theologian describe what the gospel is. Um, they ask him, what's his greatest achievement? and thing that he derives the most satisfaction from, um, which is interesting. He says, the best thing I ever did was to get married and have a family. And he also, he says, it also pleased me greatly to have been a minister of the gospel. Um, and then they ask him, how would you like to be remembered? And he says, I would like to be remembered as someone who has been faithful to the gospel, both in his teaching and in his preaching. So you get kind of personal with the stuff in that book. Um, there are uh, collections of essays written about his work. Um, one is, um, I think it's edited by Elmer Collier. I think it's called Trinitarian something or other. Um, I'm, f I'm forgetting the name of it um, at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say that book, the McGrath biography is great. Paul Molnar has also written a biography of his. Um, and then Mediation of Christ's Atonement is probably the book that I'd get started with if you want to get into his more technical dogmatic theology. Um, yeah, I, I, that's where I'd start. Man, man, that's super helpful. Well, I, I have really enjoyed this. This has been super interesting. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us about this, Chris. And as always, everybody who's been listening, I, you need to go check out Chris's stuff. Um, his, his journal articles, his books. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic scholar in all senses of the term. So he loves the local church, and yet he also loves rigorous thinking. Can't recommend him highly enough. So go buy the Kindle version, or maybe it'll go on sale at some point and grab it then. You know, we'll, we'll make sure to let you guys know. Or tell your library to go ahead and purchase the book. If your library doesn't have a copy of the book, make sure to put in a request so that they buy it and have it accessible for you as either research for yourself or for other students, because I think they'll benefit. So thanks, Chris. This has been awesome. Everybody uh, who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.